Hello guys, this is Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title and I'm coming to you today with Corona Bonus episode number 3 as voted for by your very kind selves in the show's Facebook discussion group page. Now, three have been chosen and we got this one tonight. There is one coming up later on in the week and I've opted to use one as well for this week's episode of the show. Now, we will try and get business back to normal as usual what can I say? Crazy times, it's like the end of the world, isn't it? Eh? But it will settle down. Hang in there, folks. If you're stuck indoors like we all are, try not to let it drive you too crazy. We'll get through it. We really will. So the bonus episode that has been chosen for yourselves for this one, for Corona Bonus number three, is a case that I first did, I think it was about nearly two years ago now. It's coming up. And um, so it's a bit rough around the edges, but... I hope you find it interesting anyway and informative and I hope it passes that little bit of time for you so you don't want to neck the other half or string the kids up or anything like that. The episode does contain details and descriptions of a crime and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as always guys, please use your discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast As for a bonus episode, as for Corona Bonus number 3, we look back at a case I entitled The Ambleside Red Scarf Murder. Detective Chief Superintendent Jack Taylor of Cumbria Constabulary was woken from a deep sleep by the telephone ringing and in the early hours of Tuesday the 21st of January 1986 he found himself on his way to attend the scene of a suspicious death that his duty inspector had been called to. Before long, Detective Chief Superintendent Taylor found himself stood in an upstairs bathroom in a house named Lee Cottage in the grounds of the Rothay Manor Hotel in Ambleside in the Lake District. He was looking down at the body of a woman, elderly, who was laying upwards on the floor, telephone flex cable bound her ankles and wrists, and over her head was a plastic carrier bag secured with a scarf and white multi-cable flex. The dead woman was quickly identified as Bronwyn Nixon, a well-respected hotel proprietor, and a pathologist was called and arrangements were made for the scene of crime officers to descend on the scene. The town of Ambleside sits on the largest stretch of water in England, Lake Windermere, and although it's a busy place with tourists to the Lake District and visitors to Windermere, it's relatively crime-free. It's a beautiful area, Ambleside. I stayed there many years ago myself and I recommend the Lake District highly. It's so probably one of the most beautiful parts of the country. And as I said, it's relatively crime-free. But by 9am that Tuesday morning, a murder inquiry was well underway and the initial actions that are always foremost in any inquiry were being carried out. Whilst a methodical search of the house and grounds was underway, and house-to-house inquiries in the Ambleside area had begun, police were learning everything they could about the dead woman. She was identified as Bronwyn Muriel Gwendolyn Nixon, a 67-year-old divorcee and mother of two. Bronwyn was a popular member of the local community, and she involved herself with many pastimes and local activities, as well as being a regular churchgoer. She was the owner of the Rothay Manor Hotel, having been so for the past 18 years since she'd bought it with three partners in 1967. Two of these partners had subsequently died and Bronwyn had bought the third one out in 1975. 
but by this time she'd also bought Lee Cottage and she'd lived there in the grounds since 1980. Bronwyn's two adult sons, Nigel and Stephen, had both begun helping their mother run the hotel in the late 1970s and a joint ownership agreement had been drawn up that distributed the duties and responsibilities for the running of the hotel. Nigel ran the administration side, Stephen ran the dining room, the bar and the staff roster and Bronwyn oversaw the kitchen, the decorating and furnishings. Although she'd become less involved in the day-to-day running in the preceding years as she was getting on a bit and she'd left it more to her sons. Both sons were married with children and they both lived nearby to the hotel. Stephen was the person who discovered his mother's body. The post-mortem found that Bronwyn had suffered a horrendous attack. She'd been dead for at least 12 hours, probably longer, before she was found. There were several scratches and bruising to her face and neck and extensive bruising on her wrists. Cause of death was determined to be strangulation, but Bronwyn had not been sexually assaulted and she was found fully clothed. There was no sign of forced entry to the property and it looked as though the likely motive was robbery. Bronwyn's purse containing cash, personal documents and credit cards was nowhere to be found. Although there was little other evidence of ransacking to the place, the extreme violence seemed excessive for robbery though. After all, this was a 67-year-old lady. So did Bronwyn know a killer, or did the killer have a specific grudge against her, which may explain the savage violence? Stephen Nixon was able to provide a picture of Bronwyn's final days. It transpired that the Rothay Manor Hotel had closed on Sunday the 5th of January 1986 for its winter break, and a chance to complete some renovation and repair work was underway, as it was guest-free. The hotel was due to reopen on Friday the 14th of February, when all necessary redecoration and repair work had been carried out. The following day had been the staff party at the Wordsworth Hotel in nearby Grasmere, and following the party, most of the staff had taken holidays or had gone home. Following the party, Bronwyn had taken a short break away to London to stay with a friend, a relaxing shopping trip, and a trip to see the ballet The Nutcracker at the Festival Hall. Upon her return, Bronwyn had arranged to indulge in a favoured pastime of hers, painting and sketching, that she often did with a friend of hers named John, who lived in Saddleworth near the city of Manchester. John and Bronwyn would from time to time go off on these painting expeditions, with Bronwyn usually selecting a subject to paint and a location in the lakes to sketch it, and off the two would travel to there with Bronwyn's two dogs, Hoodie and Snug, which Bronwyn was absolutely devoted to. On Sunday the 19th of January, John and Bronwyn had arranged such a day and he set off from his home quite early, arriving at Lee Cottage at about 10.50am. By all accounts, Bronwyn was somewhat of a local expert in the area and where's best to paint and where's best to sketch, and an hour later they'd set off in John's car, taking the two dogs with them. They painted for most of the day until the light began to fade and then returned to Lee Cottage with John leaving to go home at about 5.45pm. Bronwyn waved him off and he was back in Saddleworth at about 7.30pm. The next morning on his way to work, John realised that he'd left his hat at Bronwyn's cottage and had found one of her dog leads in his car, so he rang the cottage that afternoon at about 2pm but he got no answer as the telephones at both Lee Cottage and the hotel itself 
were down due to the renovation work being carried out. When John returned home from work later that evening, his wife informed him that Bronwyn's son Stephen had been on the telephone asking if John knew his mother's whereabouts. John immediately rang back and spoke to Stephen's wife, telling her that he'd last seen Bronwyn the previous evening. John was understandably concerned by this, and he asked Stephen's wife to phone him if there was any news, but no telephone call came. The following morning, he rang Stephen at 8.30am to see if there was any news by that time, only to be sadly told that Bronwyn was dead. Because this was the first witness that police had who had admitted being with Bronwyn, John was initially treated as a suspect. He was arrested and taken up to Kendall Police Station in the Lake District, where he was detained for 15 hours whilst police checked out his account of their movements that day. After John's story was confirmed, he was released and eliminated as a suspect. Forensic examination of the scene had found blood staining in the hallway, along with clear signs that a struggle had taken place in the property, as items of furniture and ornaments had been knocked to the floor. This suggested that the initial attack had begun downstairs, but had then graduated upstairs, so had Bronwyn tried to flee upstairs from a killer. A glove mark was lifted from the lavatory seat, but of much greater significance was the discovery of a large number of distinctive red fibres, found to be cashmere, that were on and about Bronwyn's body. Only one of the neighbours questioned who lived near to the Rothay Manor Hotel had any useful information to give to police. A woman who lived in the near vicinity had heard a piercing scream coming from the hotel at about 11.30pm on the Sunday evening. She'd headed outside to look, but couldn't see anybody and she heard nothing more despite waiting for a few moments. Two days after Bronwyn's body was found, a call to the incident room was received from Preston Police Station. Bronwyn's blue Honda Accord car, which was missing from the driveway at Lee Cottage, had been found in a multi-storey car park near to Preston Bus Station. The car had an excess parking charge ticket on the windscreen that had been issued at 11.55am on Monday the 20th of January, and inquiries with the car park security determined that the car had not been parked there between 10.30pm and 11.02pm, a security had been on patrol during that time there. Yet it had been left here sometime in the next 13 hours. Police now believed that it was most likely Bronwyn had been killed late on the Sunday evening. This would correspond with the scream heard by a neighbour and it would account for the vehicle not being in the car park at least before 11pm. The car was taken away for a forensic examination, but the only noticeable difference to it was that the driver's seat had been pulled much closer to the steering wheel than normal. Also, the seat rest in the rear was left raised instead of in its normal flat position. But it was what was found inside the car that was most significant. Sixteen red cashmere fibres were found on the driver's seat, identical to those found on Bronwyn Nixon's body. Stephen Nixon had last seen his mother alive on Saturday the 18th of January. He and his wife had been at the hotel for a period of about four hours in the afternoon. Then at about 4pm he'd headed off to play squash, while Bronwyn had given his wife a lift home at about 5pm as she was on her way out to go to a fundraising concert in Preston for the Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra. 
He knew that his mother had arranged to go painting with John the following day, and he'd driven past that morning, which was his day off, and seen both John's white Ford Cortina and his mother's Honda parked outside the cottage. The following day, Monday the 20th, Stephen had arrived at the hotel for work at about 9.45am and noticed his mother's car to be missing. With no undue concern, he thought she must simply be out with some friends or running an errand or something like that. The only slightly thing out of the norm, though, was although the two dogs were outside as usual, one was tethered in its kennel, and Bronwyn never did this until about 10 o'clock at night. Using his own key, Stephen let himself into the cottage for a cursory look around. He noticed nothing out of place in the living room or kitchen, although he did notice a stool lying on its side in the hall. He picked it up, thinking that perhaps one of the dogs had knocked it over, and then he left. Stephen's working day and various errands that he had to undertake took him past the cottage several times that afternoon, and still not seeing his mother's car there, he decided to go back later. At about 7.30pm, he returned to the cottage and again let himself in, this time looking for a possible note that his mother may have left to say where she'd gone. There was no note, and as he searched the living room he turned on the lights and noticed that they were turned down to a dim glow, something Bronwyn never did. He also noticed that the vacuum cleaner was moved from its usual position. So by now Stephen was beginning to get worried, and he took both dogs home with him, and decided to ring John to ask if he knew where Bronwyn was. John was out when he rang, and John's wife told Stephen that he'd arrived home about 7.30pm, with Bronwyn having waved him off. About three hours later, at 11pm, Stephen took the two dogs back to the cottage, again finding no sign of his mother. He fed and tethered the dogs for the evening, locked up the house, and headed back towards home. Halfway through his journey, he decided to head back and check his mother's desk diary to see if there were any entries that may shed light on where she was. He turned around and headed back, and was later to describe in his own words. As I went back to the cottage, it occurred to me that I hadn't looked upstairs. I immediately went up the stairs and noticed that her bedroom was in disarray. I looked in the bathroom and saw my mother lying on the bathroom floor. I had to push the door to open it as she was lying behind it. I saw that she'd been tied up. I turned her over and she appeared dead. I immediately left the cottage and went to Ambleside Police Station. Unfortunately, it was closed. The phone in the cottage and hotel were not working because of the renovations, so I used a nearby public telephone box to call the police. By a week into the inquiry, the investigating team were having a certain level of success. As a result of police appeals, witnesses came forward claiming that they'd seen Bronwyn's car being driven in the Preston area. One man who'd seen it being driven on the A6 Garstang Road at about 6.50 on the morning of Monday the 20th of January described the driver as being a young man, 25 to 35 years old, with dark collar length hair and an enormous handlebar moustache. A search for evidence continued around the area that Bronwyn's car was found and appeals for witnesses being made in the Preston area. Back at Rothay Manor, the hotel staff were being interviewed. As the hotel had been closed for renovations for a period of weeks, many of them had gone home or used the time to take holidays, as we said before. One of the staff was a waiter named Andrew, who'd worked there for about a year, and when he heard news of the murder a few days later, which is hard to imagine really, isn't it, a few days, 
it's hard to think back before a time of instant messaging and social media where these things would be shared and learned of instantly. It's just hard to remember that really, isn't it? So when news of Bronwyn's death filtered back to Andrew, he had a chilling feeling that he may know who the killer was. A man who'd stayed with him in the staff quarters of the hotel for a few weeks. He was to tell later, As soon as I heard that Mrs Nixon had been murdered, my gut feeling was that he'd done it, deep down, yet I didn't want to believe it. I mean, she's my boss and we got on really well and I was going back to the hotel as they'd offered me a better position there, but deep down, because of the way that he'd treated me, just because he was so violent and the things he'd said about Mrs Nixon, I felt deep down that he'd done it. The he that Andrew was talking about was a man called David Wynne Roberts. At the end of November 1985, Andrew had travelled up to Blackpool for a night out with some of his friends, and the group had ended up in a Blackpool gay nightclub called the Flamingo Club. Being Andrew's night off, he went out to enjoy himself that evening, and he ended up meeting a man who kept catching his eye at the bar. He was slim, about six feet tall, and had dark collar-length hair, but what was most striking about him was his massive handlebar moustache. It almost looked Mexican, Andrew recalled. So they got talking, and Roberts told Andrew that he'd originally come from Anglesey in North Wales, although Andrew recalled that he didn't have any noticeable accents. I don't know, do North Wales people have a noticeable accent? Or do we all sound like Ringo Starr, Postman Pat, or things like that? From the initial conversation that they had, Andrew did notice that he smoked lots, and although he drank beer, it was only ever in halves of a pint, which I can never see the point of myself. I'd rather not bother than have a shrunken pint. Roberts's hair was jet black, and he wore items of jewellery, a silver ring on his wedding finger, although this had been handed down by a family member and he was not married, he claimed, and a thin gold bracelet with a faulty catch. Roberts was also a bit of a show-off, and one of these people who are like, if you've been to New Zealand, then they've been to Old Zealand. Do you know what I mean? In the short initial conversation that they had, Roberts had name-dropped several famous people that he claimed to know, claimed that he'd lived and worked in London and Brighton, and he owned a sports car. Andrew was attracted to Roberts despite this, and he invited him to return home to the staff quarters at Rothay Manor with him. Andrew said later, He travelled back to Ambleside with us all and stayed in my room. Although most of the staff knew, I don't think the owners did. During the time he stayed, he was drawing money from the DHSS, and he stayed with me until Thursday, January the 9th, apart from a two-week period when he went back to Blackpool. During the time he stayed, I kept telling him that it was difficult, but he made no attempt to leave. It was when I was telling him to go that he became more violent. On one occasion, I received a black eye and a bruised nose. I never complained to the police, because I didn't want to involve the hotel. Roberts had become the annoying guest that you want to leave but doesn't, and Andrew was soon to regret ever inviting him back with him. During the time that he and Andrew were together, Roberts became very possessive towards him. He wouldn't let him mix with other staff members, and the two began having arguments. Andrew recalled, He was quite frankly getting on my nerves. It ended one night when he hit me, not a punch, a mere slap, which caused a black eye and a bruised nose. As he got more and more possessive, I got more and more frightened of him. 
and sometimes he even stood in front of the door, stopping me from going out. The night of the staff party, Monday the 6th of January, they had yet another argument and Robert had said that Andrew, who by now he considered to be in a relationship with, could not attend. He eventually relented on this, and whilst Andrew was out celebrating, Robert stayed at the hotel in Andrew's room. The following day Andrew wanted to go home to his parents, but Robert insisted that he stay at the hotel, so Andrew relented, but he'd made up his mind to go home alone on Thursday the 9th of January, wanting to get away now from this now unwelcome guest. That Thursday morning, Roberts reacted with anger when Andrew told him that he was leaving, but he'd eventually calmed down and even pleaded with him to stay. Andrew was adamant though that he was leaving, and rang his father, who lived about 20 miles away, to come and collect him and his stuff. He waited downstairs in reception, waiting his father to collect him, whilst Roberts collected his few things from Andrew's room, then came down, and after again unsuccessfully pleading with Andrew to stay, he left. When he was gone, Andrew returned up to his room to find some clothing and £75 missing. A week later, Andrew heard from Roberts again. He called him at about 7.30pm that evening, saying he was in Blackpool but had got a job in London, and he wanted to meet up to return the stolen clothing. He suggested meeting in the nearby town of Kendall and Andrew agreed but he went there with his father. It was about 10.30pm when he found Robert waiting outside the hotel they'd arranged to meet at. Robert claimed he had nowhere to stay but Andrew was wise to this now and so he gave him the name of a guest house that he knew and left not wanting anything more to do with Robert. The following day Roberts rang him again claiming that he'd been forced to sleep rough and again wanting desperately to meet up with him, Andrew point-blank refused. When the inquiry team spoke to Andrew, they learned that during one of the rows that they had had, Roberts had threatened to go to Mrs Nixon and tell her about their relationship. Now it was not clear as to whether Mrs Nixon already knew that Andrew and Roberts were staying together, and if she did know, whether or not she approved of it. I mean, it was a different time back then, different opinions on things. Roberts had also suggested that the staff at the hotel should form a union because in his opinion he resented how the staff were treated by the hotel management. So police now looked into David Wynne Roberts as a person of interest in the crime and they found that he had a criminal past with several convictions. But one of these stood out above all the rest because David Wynne Roberts had already committed murder before. Roberts had been born on Anglesey on the 29th of October 1954 and in July 1969, at age just 14 years old, he'd been found guilty after a 14-day trial of stabbing to death a 73-year-old widow with a bread knife at her bungalow in Four Mile Bridge. The widow, Sarah Hughes, was wealthy and owned several properties in the area and was described by locals who knew her as being an active community member who looked and seemed much younger than her years. She'd been to school with Roberts' grandmother, and she was a regular visitor to the Roberts household. His father had even drawn up the plans for the bungalow that Sarah lived in. She was also a nervous, meticulous woman, who'd never opened her door to strangers, and she locked all of the doors in her house, including her bedroom door, 
every evening when she retired for bed at ten o'clock promptly. When her body was discovered on the 5th of March 1969, the bungalow had been ransacked and an amount of money stolen, including ten one-pound notes, which had been given to Mrs Hughes on the day of her death. It also appeared that a killer had attempted to drive her car from the garage before abandoning it. It was parked across the driveway and left in reverse gear. Because Roberts was known to Mrs Hughes, he was interviewed as part of routine inquiries and he provided an alibi, but detectives found several discrepancies in his story, and after further questioning, Roberts made a statement admitting to the murder. When he was searched, £10 was found hidden in an anorak of his, and a search of his room at home revealed a book that had been hollowed out to hide a wallet. Inside this wallet were the ten one-pound notes taken from Miss Hughes's home. Roberts' statement claimed that he'd visited the house on the day of her murder, saying, She called me a young imp and said that she would tell my mother I was trying to break into her house. I lost my temper, followed her into the house, picked up the knife and struck her. Convicted at Carnarvon Aziz's in July 1969, Roberts served seven years for the crime before being released in 1976. He spent large periods in periodic employment following his release, as well as periods of time homeless, moving all over the country, with large periods being spent in London and Brighton's gay scenes, and by 1985 he had found himself in Blackpool. Police were struck by the similarities between the murders of Sarah Hughes and Bronwyn Nixon. Both elderly ladies, both killed in their own home, the house ransacked in both cases, and an attempt to drive the car away, successfully in the case of Bronwyn Nixon. It seemed too much of a remarkable coincidence that the man responsible for the former crime could be placed at the scene of the latter at around the crucial time and David Wynne Roberts went right to the top of the suspect list. But with no actual idea where Roberts was, police inquiries concentrated on where he was known to have been a regular visitor to. He was a frequent visitor to the Flamingo Club, where he'd met Andrew and one of the prominent gay nightclubs in Blackpool at the time. Two police officers spent several nights there questioning revellers to see if anyone knew or remembered him and one man came forward who had been with him the night before the murder. The man, known as Chris, claimed that he'd seen Roberts on a number of occasions as he recognised the enormous moustache, and ended up leaving the club with him on the night in question. He vividly recalled Roberts wearing a pale coloured coat, and a bright red cashmere scarf. The two men went back to the Lord's guest house in Blackpool where Roberts was staying, and after coffee, both went upstairs to bed. No sexual activity took place and Chris recalled feeling uneasy with Roberts the following day. There was just something about him. Chris left at about noon after giving Roberts his telephone number and drove home. At about 4.30pm that afternoon, Roberts rang Chris and suggested that they meet that evening, but Chris declined as he was tired and suggested meeting later in the week. By the time he called Roberts back a few days later, Roberts had left the Lord's guest house. So police now knew that Roberts had been within 75 miles of Ambleside on the day of Bronwyn Nixon's murder, and as this was their hottest lead, left to interview the guest house owners. The guest house was owned by a couple, John and Steve, and John did the day-to-day running of the business. 
On Thursday the 16th of January, he'd received a telephone call in the morning from Roberts requesting a room. A room was allocated to him, and Roberts arrived there by taxi that afternoon. He told John that he was expecting a friend from London to visit him on the Sunday who'd be staying with him for the week, and that his friend was foreign and didn't speak very good English. That evening, Roberts had left the guest house saying that he was going to Windermere to stay with an ex-lover to sort something out. Roberts had returned the following day saying that the man, Andrew, had had his father with him and he wasn't allowed to stay, and so had spent the night sleeping at the railway station. That weekend he went out in Blackpool and was seen by John and his partner Steve on the Saturday evening dancing with a man at the Flamingo Club. The man was later revealed to be Chris. John and Steve saw Chris leave the guest house the following day, Sunday the 19th of January, having stayed with Roberts, and then they watched a film with Roberts early that afternoon. The film was a horror movie that they'd recorded the previous evening, and during the course of the film, Roberts had made a remark that he'd read a book about Dennis Nilsson recently, and that he felt sorry for murderers, and he understood why they did it. If only they knew, eh? Shortly after this, Roberts returned to his room and then he went out. Neither John nor Steve saw Roberts again that evening and they considered that he may have left without settling the bill. So about 8pm they went to check his room and found his belongings still there. They spent the evening sat in the lounge at the front of the guest house with the curtains open and at no point did they see Roberts return before they locked up and went to bed about midnight. The following morning, Steve got up about 8.30am and when he went downstairs, he noticed the keys to room number 8, which was Roberts' room, on the hall table. Next to the keys was an envelope containing the money that was owed for his stay, plus a note that said, My friends have been unable to come from London, so I've decided to go there. Thank you very much for your hospitality. A check of the room revealed that Roberts' belongings were all gone and that the bed appeared as though it hadn't been slept in. Police were now even more anxious to find David Wynne Roberts. The period of time that he was unaccounted for from the guest house corresponded exactly with the time of the murder, and he was of course now the prime suspect. But they had no idea where he was, and further inquiries came up with nothing, so Detective Chief Superintendent Taylor decided to appeal to Crime Watch UK. Ah, come on, I hear a lot of you say, it's been weeks and weeks since I've last mentioned it, so give me a break. It's got to come back, hasn't it? When he contacted Crime Watch, it was the week of the programme's transmission, and all cases for inclusion had been decided on already, but the Nixon case was considered so serious that its inclusion was allowed. A meeting between producers and BBC lawyers was arranged to discuss the legal implications of broadcasting such an item because Roberts was a named suspect and it was important to make sure nothing said or shown could jeopardise any eventual possible trial. When how best to word the segment was agreed on, an appeal was made at the very beginning of the programme on Thursday the 30th of January 1986, simply asking anyone who'd seen or knew the whereabouts of David Wynne Roberts to contact them, as Cumbria police needed to speak to him regarding the murder of Bronwyn Nixon. Watching the programme at home in Whitehaven in Cumbria, because Crime Watch was still on then to watch in the comfort of your own home, BBC, you twats. The secretary recognised the picture of Roberts immediately 
and she contacted the police incident room. She told how on Sunday the 19th of January at about 6.40pm she'd been waiting for a bus at Lancaster bus station after visiting a friend for a weekend when a man had stopped to ask her if she knew the times of the buses going to Ambleside. The bus she was getting went through Ambleside and when she told him this the man waited behind her in the queue. She recalled him producing a card which appeared to be a Rover type bus ticket but being told by the driver that it was not valid and that the man had to pay a sum of £3.50. He sat a short distance on the bus from the woman and as the journey would take well over an hour she had plenty of time to study him. He was aged about 30 years old He had collar-length dark hair and an earring, but the most prominent striking thing about him was his enormous handlebar moustache. So police now knew that David Wynne Roberts had been in Ambleside shortly after 8pm on the evening of Bronwyn Nixon's murder. This was a fantastic phone call for police to get, showing how well the premise of Crime Watch worked, but another call was to prove astonishing. Detective Chief Superintendent Taylor sat in the studio just minutes after the programme had finished, received a call from Chiswick Police Station in West London. A man had just walked in and said to the duty officer, My photograph appeared on Crime Watch this evening in connection with the murder of Mrs Nixon in Ambleside. I've come here with my solicitor, as I understand you have a few questions to ask me. Roberts had been watching Crime Watch himself and had seen himself on television. DCS Taylor dispatched two officers from the investigating team who'd come to London with him when he appeared on Crime Watch to go and collect Roberts from Chiswick, take him into their custody and to drive him back through the night to Kendall Police Station. Taylor then flew back to Cumbria himself the following morning and at 3.20pm that afternoon the interviews with David Wynne Roberts began. Appearing relaxed and happy, Roberts admitted that he'd met Bronwyn Nixon on a couple of occasions and then outlined how he'd met Andrew and told police about him staying with Andrew at Rothay Manor. Roberts claimed that the last time he was in Ambleside was the period between the 6th and the morning of the 9th of January when he'd left. He admitted seeing Andrew on the 16th of January in Kendall and then he gave a version of events that tied in with the statements from Chris, the man from the Flamingo Club, and the proprietors of the Lord's Guest House, John and Steve. But Roberts's version of events from about 4pm that afternoon differed from what police by now were convinced had happened. Roberts claimed that he'd had a shower at about 5pm and then gone to a snack bar. He'd returned to the guest house and fallen asleep in his room until about 8pm, then he'd gone out to the Flamingo Club until about 11.30pm. He spent the night back at the Lord's and had decided to leave for London the following morning, getting the 7.50am train. He called a friend of his in London, Renato, to tell him what time he was arriving whilst changing trains in Preston. Roberts, when he was asked, categorically denied leaving Blackpool between 4pm on Sunday the 19th of January and 8am on Monday the 20th of January. The interview was then halted at 4.53pm so police could go and check out his story. Returning to the Lord's guest house, they had a formidable stroke of luck. The rubbish from the guest house had not been collected on the due day because it was not left in the correct place and it was still there. Some things never change there really, do they? 
Perhaps Roberts had disposed of something that may be important evidence. Three large sacks of rubbish were taken to a large garage nearby, and police officers had the unenviable task of checking through the contents. After a while, at the bottom of one of the sacks, they found the corners of two black cards bearing the name Nixon in gold lettering. Along with these, a tightly rolled ball of newspaper was found for the Royal Festival Ballet, with the nutcracker marked with two red crosses and a telephone number written on the advertisement in Black Biro. There were also eight torn fragments of a card bearing the name Rothay Manor Hotel. Inquiries revealed that the telephone number was for a credit card line, and it was discovered that Bronwyn Nixon had paid for two tickets to the Nutcracker by credit card at 6pm on Thursday the 9th of January. Also, the cards were shown to Stephen Nixon, who confirmed that they were his mother's old business cards, and that the writing on the scrap of newspaper was his mother's. He also confirmed that these items would most likely have been in his mother's purse or handbag, so here was proof that Roberts had been at the Rothay Manor Hotel sometime after 6pm on the 9th of January, and how had he ended up with items from Mrs Nixon's purse. But also amongst the rubbish, police found two tiny red cashmere fibres. When they were examined, they proved to be an exact match for the fibres found in Mrs Nixon's car and on her body at the scene of the murder. This suggested that the same person who'd been at the murder scene had also been in the car and also at the Lord's Guest House, all within the last 12 days. Meanwhile, another witness who'd seen details of the case in the newspapers came forward and it transpired that she'd been on the same bus as the secretary who'd phoned into Crime Watch. She corroborated her story. She too remembered the man on the bus with a thick, bushy moustache as he had actually sat next to her on the journey. They chatted periodically through the trip and he claimed that he was on holiday in the area at the time, which she thought was quite strange for the time of year. She was also of the impression that the man was agitated and in a hurry to get to Ambleside. She'd gotten off the bus in Kendall at about 8pm and the man had remained on the bus. Police now had several witnesses who claimed to have seen Roberts on the bus on Sunday the 19th of January and he was still denying leaving Blackpool, so it was decided to hold an identity parade which Roberts had refused on the basis that it would be prejudiced because his photograph had been shown on both television and in the press. But under the laws of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act 1984, if a suspect refuses to take part in an identification parade, then a confrontation can be arranged between witnesses and the suspect, and this can be done in several ways. It can be as a standard line-up with people in similar appearance, or the witnesses would be allowed to see him in a group of people. Roberts refused both of these, so finally it had to be arranged for him to sit on his own behind a one-way mirror and to be confronted by the witnesses. For this to be arranged and the witnesses gathered, an extension to Roberts' custody was requested and police were granted a further 36 hours to question him. While this was being arranged, as part of corroborating the information Roberts had given in interview, two officers had gone down to London to visit the friend of Roberts that he'd mentioned staying with over the period of 13th to the 16th of January, a Maltese man named Renato, whom Roberts had met in a London gay club in December 1984. 
The two had kept in touch through letters and phone calls ever since, and on Monday the 13th of January, Renato had arrived back in London for a visit from his home country. Roberts had met him and the two had stayed together for a number of days before Roberts told him that he was returning to Blackpool on the 17th of January claiming that it was too expensive to live in London. Not expecting to see Roberts again during his holiday, Renato was surprised when Roberts telephoned him at 8am on Monday the 20th of January and said that he was returning to London. The two spent several more days together before Renato went to visit a family member in Bristol. What was most telling about this trip was Renato's claim that he and Roberts had exchanged several items of clothing. Roberts had given Renato a pair of black leather gloves that he claimed had belonged to his friend Andrew from Kendall. He also gave him some beige shoes, a pair of boots and a red cashmere scarf. Renato said, I exchanged my black and white scarf with Wynne for a red one that he was already wearing. He said it irritated his neck and that he'd bought it in Harrods last year for £25. The wallet wasn't the type I would use, but I kept it and thought maybe I'd give it to my sister. I can't remember when exactly he gave them to me, but it was sometime after he'd returned from Blackpool on the 20th of January. Still having the scarf in his possession, detectives couldn't believe their luck. They now had a red cashmere scarf that belonged to Roberts in their possession and the very next day Renato was due to fly back to Malta. Had Roberts not told police about him, it's likely that he would have taken the scarf and police would never have found it. The same day that police were speaking to Renato, the confrontation between several witnesses and David Wynne Roberts took place at Kendall Police Station. These witnesses included the man who'd seen Roberts driving the blue Honda on the morning of the 20th of January and the two women who had contacted police separately after being on the same bus as him. Four out of five witnesses positively identified him immediately, including these three. The following day, the results from comparisons between fibres from the red cashmere scarf belonging to Roberts and the fibres taken from the murder scene the driver's seat of the Honda and those discovered in the rubbish from the Lord's guest house were received. They proved to be an identical, undisputable match. On February the 3rd, 1986, David Wynne Roberts was charged with the murder of Bronwyn Nixon. He was remanded in custody and pleaded not guilty to murder at his trial in November 1986 at Manchester Crown Court. But after a two-week trial, On the 1st of December 1986, he was found guilty and collected his second murder conviction. David Wynne Roberts was then sentenced to life imprisonment. The judge, Mr Justice Garland, declined to recommend the minimum time he should serve. When the case was subsequently referred to the then Lord Chief Justice, Lord Lane, to determine the minimum sentence Roberts should serve, Lord Lane said, I doubt if he ever should be released. Certainly 18 years should be the absolute minimum. The Home Secretary at the time, Douglas Hurd, then set Roberts a whole life tariff in 1988, which is a very rare decision at the time. It's commonplace now, well it's more commonplace now, but at the time it was incredibly rare. Further representations were made on behalf of Roberts, and in November 2001, Home Secretary David Blunkett set Roberts' tariff at 22 years. 
Roberts later applied to have this tariff reviewed and in a hearing at Birmingham Crown Court before Mr Justice Gibbs in February 2005, the tariff was set at just over 21 years. However, at the time of this episode, David Wynne Roberts remains in prison. He is now aged 63 years old and has continued for 33 years to deny any involvement in the murder of Bronwyn Nixon and because he pleaded not guilty at trial, the motive for a murder will never likely be really known. It wasn't a sex crime, and while the motive could have been one of robbery, it seemed very violent. Plus, why do you travel 75 miles for a robbery that it may cost you more to get there than you may actually gain from doing so? Perhaps that evening some dark forces, the same dark forces that he'd had in his mind at age 14, when he stabbed to death Sarah Hughes had come to light and he set out that night with murder in his heart. Did he think of a person that he perhaps blamed for the breakup of his short relationship with Andrew, Bronwyn Nixon, who Andrew had claimed had disapproved of Robert sharing his room as an excuse to end their fling, or did he have another as yet unrevealed grudge against her? There was no sign of provocation, they weren't known to have fought or rowed, and it's unclear as to whether she even knew Roberts was there, or they had ever actually met. Was he after someone else, perhaps thinking Andrew might be there? Whatever the reason was, unless Roberts has a crisis of conscience, it's likely a reason that he'll take to his grave with him. I believe it's also indeed possible that Roberts could be responsible for other murders and also have killed again in the ten years he was at liberty from being released after serving time for his first murder in 1976. When someone commits two very similar murders, 17 years apart, okay, yes, seven of them were incarcerated, but ten of them at liberty, then you tend to think that that person may be culpable in others, and there are a number of unsolved crimes scattered across the country that I believe a check of his movements against for the time period would be well worth doing so. Unfortunately, due to his nomadic lifestyle, this would prove near impossible to do and you'd have to rely on Roberts confessing to all or any other crimes that he's responsible for, and it seems highly unlikely that he would do so. What do you think? Could Roberts be responsible for others? Would he ever be safe to release? And of course, should Crime Watch be brought back considering the role that it played in bringing a killer to justice? Roberts would never have given himself up had he not been so shocked to see himself on television. But is there still a role for that in today's society, where information and pictures can be shared not just nationwide, but worldwide, at the click of a button? Lots of questions left to ponder, eh? Thank you so much again for being able to join me for this bonus episode of the show. Exclusive for you very kind patrons only because of your support. And I look forward to you joining me for next month's bonus Patreon episode, number 8. Catch the regular True Crime Enthusiast podcast every True Crime Thursday, which I look forward to you joining me for. And I'll finish off now by saying that I've been Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast, wishing you guys safe and well times, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care all, thanks for joining me, and goodbye for now.